Doings of Doyle is sponsored by Belanger Books, home of the best Sherlock Holmes anthologies featuring today's top Sherlockian authors. Belanger Books is the only authorised publisher of Solar Ponds Mysteries, continuing the Sherlock Holmes legacy into the 21st century. Visit them today at belangerbooks.com. Welcome to Doings of Doyle, a podcast dedicated to the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Professor Challenger, Brigadier Gerard, and of course, Sherlock Holmes. I'm Mark Jones. And I'm Paul Chapman. And together we'll be exploring Doyle's eclectic bibliography to understand more about the great man's life and work. We'll be discussing his fiction and non-fiction, the well-known and the obscure. And stopping by Baker Street along the way. You can find out more at doingsofdoyle.com or follow us at doingsofdoyle on Twitter. Hello and welcome to episode 16, and we're very pleased to bring you a change to our published schedule, because today Paul and I are delighted to welcome to the podcast Shrabani Basu, author of The Mystery of the Parsi Lawyer, a new and groundbreaking book on the case of George Edelgee. Shrabani is a journalist and Sunday Times bestselling author. Her books include the critically acclaimed For King and Another Country, Indian Soldiers on the Western Front, Victoria and Abdul, the true story of the Queen's closest confidant, which you'll remember was turned into an excellent Oscar-nominated motion picture, Spy Princess, the life of Noor Inyad Khan, and Curry, the story of the nation's favourite dish. She's the founder and chair of the Noor Inyad Khan Memorial Trust, which successfully campaigned for a memorial for the World War II heroine, which was unveiled in London in 2012, and she's a frequent commentator on radio and television on Indian history and empire. Shrabani, welcome to the podcast. Lovely to be here. Thank you, Mark. Now, there's so much to cover. Uh, Paul and I have got so many questions, so let's get stuck in and maybe let's begin with the book. So for those who haven't got their copy yet, can you tell us a bit about what the mystery of the Parsi lawyer is all about? George Adalji was a lawyer and he is the son of a vicar. The vicar's name was Shapurji Adalji and Shapurji had come from India. He was a Parsi, he had converted to Christianity, and he had become the vicar of Great Worley. So here was this brown man preaching the word of Christ to a completely white um, parish. And, uh, you know, so he has married an English woman. He has, they have three children. The children, you know, are called half caste. And of course, it's something that's just going to, you know, it's not going to go Mm. down well in this village. It's a very insular, it's a small mining village. You have either the working class uh, miners or you have the aristocrats. And it's, you know, this family is going to just fall through uh, both sides. And uh, so that Mm. is the start of the story. I mean, this starts, the story starts in Victorian England. It starts in 1876, when Shapurji Adalji actually becomes the vicar Mm. of Great Worley. And he's the first South Asian vicar in England. And uh, George is born within a few months. So George is their firstborn. And um, with, by the time George is just 12, these messages, mm. you know, hate-filled messages, uh, letters, uh, poison pen letters, graffiti, all start. Uh, so one day he, uh, the vicar finds that outside the vicarage, it's painted, um, the Idalgis are wicked. And um, he, you know, he wipes it off, gets on with it. And then these letters start. And they are vicious. They are, you know, they are violent almost. And they are racist. There is no other way. 
um, of describing them. And uh, so this is the start, you know, and the children are just young. George is just 12 and he's being targeted. Um, so they don't know what to do. There's nobody to help them. They go to the police. The police are not helpful. Uh, in fact, the police think that it's George who's written these letters. So for some reason, George is suspect. But uh, so to come mm. back to your question, and then, of course, it gets more and more serious because in 1903, when there is actually a crime in the village, the police think it's George who's done it and he is arrested. And that's how this whole story mm. starts, because George is then arrested, uh, uh, imprisoned, tried and uh, imprisoned for seven years. And he then writes to Arthur Conan Doyle to help him mm. clear his name, which is how Arthur Conan Doyle comes into the picture. How did you first hear about the the Edeldrie case? And then what? Uh, how how did you you then find out about this this archive that Portsmouth Museum have got, which has led you into the new information uh, about the case? Right. So, uh, Paul, you know, I, I love doing stories about these unknown characters mm. who played a role in history. And uh, most of my books are based on those. So I'm always looking for interesting uh, characters, Asian characters, uh, Indians with who have a link to British history as well. Uh, so, you know, Victoria and Abdul, nobody knew about this story about uh, Abdul Karim and Queen Victoria. Um, it's it's so I'm always digging around. I'm a journalist by profession. I love bringing out these stories. So I do did know about George Adalji because um, he's uh, obviously, you know, he's been, I'm also a huge fan of Arthur Conan Doyle. Mm, <laughs> so I had yes. read certain, uh, you know, biographies of his. So I knew that the only case that Arthur Conan Doyle investigates himself was to do with an Indian, <laughs> you know, it was like, goodness, this is a story I have to follow. You know, this is a link that is just terrific. So I, you know, I always had it in mind, but I was working on other books and, you know, the day job and everything else. Uh, and then Julian Barnes <laughs> published a book <laughs> and I said, oh, dear, he's beaten me to it. And he's Julian Barnes. And who am I? <laughs> so that was that. And then I said, OK, we'll rest this. Um, and I sort of put it on the back burner and went on with my other books. Um, and then in 2015, a uh, bit of luck. Uh, I saw a small article in the newspaper saying that there was going to be an auction of some letters of Arthur Conan Doyle and um, they were to the chief of Staffordshire police and they dealt with the Adalchi case. And it was like, okay, <laughs> this is it. Over my cereal, I said, oh, I've got to follow this up. This is a sign. And uh, that's what really started me off. I went, I made an appointment. I went there um, to uh, Bonhams, the auction house. Mm -hmm. And I was wearing my journalist hat <laughs> because I had to sneak in there, <laughs> you know, get in there, which is true. I mean, I did write an article about it. So I wasn't, uh, you know, kidding them, but I, I wanted to see all the papers mm -hmm. and, they were really surprised that a journalist wanted to sit there for three hours looking at these papers. They said, you're just writing an article. And I, I just couldn't be torn away from those boxes because there was so much there. Then anyway, finally, I let them go. And I said, I just hope, I prayed that it would not go into a private collection and I wouldn't be able to see them. Because believe me, there were so many boxes and I knew it, it was full of, you know, really good Un unpublished material. Mm. Uh, so luckily, Portsmouth uh, Library bought, uh, we, you know, they have the Arthur Conan Doyle archives. So they bought the material. And uh, as soon as I heard about them, uh, I heard about this, I 
well, I made an appointment and I think I was the first in there to read those books, you know, get through them. Uh, and they were just amazing because, uh, you know, there was my story. It was just so much happening, which, you know, we'll discuss later. But that was the start of it, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, you must have been an absolute tenterhooks worrying that this was going to, to cross to America or, or, or somewhere else and just disappear from public view completely. I I was, you know, mm. I honestly, I'm not the praying sort and I prayed that, oh, please, <laughs> please don't let these go to a private collector because even though private collections, they let you access it, it just makes it that much more difficult, isn't it? And then you have to yes, write yeah. to the person and whether they want to um, let you access it also. So anyway, I was lucky. Mm. Absolutely. <laughs> Good old Portsmouth archives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The Anson papers are the major new revelation in, in the book, but Taking a step back, just before we go into into Anson in a bit more detail, let's focus a bit more on the the Edelges themselves as well. And one thing that really struck me in the book that I think hasn't come out of previous accounts in quite the same way was the sheer level of hostility and um, harassment and intimidation that the the Edelge mm -hmm. family uh, suffered. I mean that that was quite incredible. So these poison pen letters are actually in the National Archives, and some of them are in mm. Portsmouth. And to sit there in the archives and look at these letters, you know, some of them are torn, some of them are just little shreds of paper with crude drawings on them. Mm. Some of them are longer and mm. vicious and underlined. And, you know, you have words like revenge written on them and George will be in his grave. And yeah, it's just, just a thought that, you know, this vicar is receiving these and you know knowing that his child his son is being mm. threatened every day and it must have been horrible mm. for them uh, but these archives uh, so you can see these letters in the archives and then of course uh, there are more records in Birmingham archives and Staffordshire archives so uh, I traveled between <laughs> different archives and had to put the whole story together mm. Um, the home office files are in the National Archives, so that's where you get a lot of the police records mm. and the trial and everything else. Well, I think it's amazing that you managed to pull together so much material on the early life of George and the background on Shapaji, and that is a is a is a major aspect of the book. It's something that really has, I think, moved forward the the scholarly um, study of of this topic because. That that was really just a footnote in previous in previous works, um, mm -hmm. and as you say, Shapaji comes out as quite an amazing character. I wonder what you thought of uh, uh, Shapaji staying in the village because if you put yourself in that in that circumstance, I mean, I I'm not sure I would be able to resist those yeah. sort of pressures on myself and and the family. Absolutely. I mean, I was just thinking, you know, what is this man going through with nobody to help him? Mm. Um, and uh, but it also reminded me of, you know, in the early 70s and 60s and 70s, it's what the immigrants went through, all the yeah. South Asian immigrants. If you think of the Bangladeshis who ran all these curry houses, you know, the mm. people would come in uh, and, you know, hit them on the head, be rude, offensive. You think of all the uh, you know, the Asian uh, news agents, uh, and they would have graffiti on them, and they'd mm. all come in around the 70s, they owned the corner shops, uh, they would have their windows broken, they would be vandalized, they would have graffiti, what would they do? They would just repair the window, you know, wash off the graffiti, and get on with it. Mm. And I think... Um, this is the sort of, uh, you know, sort of spirit that uh, uh, Shapurji had. He just he just carried on. He he did what he thought he should do. So he went to the police, uh, got nowhere with them. 
he also went to the media so mm. you know he tried his best he knew that the media this it would be reported so he went to journalists he went to the media he did get coverage but it didn't really help him either uh what puzzles me is why he didn't go appeal to all the, his other the vicars in neighboring churches why didn't the yeah. church stand up to you know help this man who is being uh, so oppressed and he's writing about it in the paper so that puzzles me maybe he was just proud maybe he mm. didn't think about it uh, mm. you know who knows he mm. just went to the police went to the press and um, took it that way i mean you you talk in the in the book about uh, shepherdy um with with his marriage that mm -hmm. through his marriage he was actually very well connected mm -hmm. into the higher echelons of, of of the church of england and it is very strange how they don't mm -hmm. step in to defend their man that's it, true it is that's definitely true. one of the oddities of the case it is but also on the other hand it is he did get his job as the vicar of great worley because of connections <laughs> so maybe there was also resentment Mm, because yes. uh, you know this was literally handed to him it was handed mm. to him as a gift by charlotte's uncle mm. uh, who was retiring from the position and he had the gift of the curacy he gave it to his niece's husband and sharpuji is installed so maybe that led to uh, some sort of discontent and you know resentment who knows who knows mm. what was really you know yes. sort of boiling but a lot of elements were boiling over there and um, Shapuji, well, the church didn't stand by Shapuji, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. He served as the vicar for 40 years. He's buried mm. in the same church. So it's incredible mm. what he went through and how he never gave up the fight. He carried on. Mm -hmm. And he carried on with his work as a vicar as well at the same <laughs> time. So it's yeah, so quite, quite a character. Mm. The other thing that really comes out of the book, and I think it's something I really, really enjoyed, was the, was the fact that you had brought out so much agency in the Adalji family as well. So they, in previous accounts I can think of, they are presented very much as as victims um, and powerless victims. But as you've just described with Shapaji, Shapaji is actively doing things to try to help. And George is no um, slouch in this respect either. I mean, George is very active. And I, I really enjoyed the fact that you were able to bring out that side. They came, they came off the page as very real people well, it was important for me, for me to enter this vicarage and see, you know, feel what, what they're going through and see their fight because you're, you're right. I mean, they really put up a fight. So mm. uh, Shapuji, you know, his son is in jail. He's so upset. He's, he believe, he, you know, he left his country and he believed he was coming to a civilized place <laughs> and, uh, you know, he's been let down, but he carries on. He, at his services, Sunday services, he starts a petition. So he, he goes into it straight away. And at this stage, I must say his wife is really supportive. So Charlotte also, I think she puts up a really good fight too. She writes letters to all these, you know, legal experts who have started questioning uh, whether there was a miscarriage of justice and she writes her sister writes so the family uh, charlotte is there uh, shapuji is there they are they're a team you know literally a core team <laughs> it's like mm. the Italji campaign <laughs> uh, which they are running um, and they do it very well because uh, they get managed to get 10000 signatures mm. uh, to uh, for a petition to give to the home office mm. and he doesn't give up and george carries on from mm. prison 
And uh, he keeps writing that, you know, this is unfair. And he keeps pointing out all the things that went wrong in the trial. But of course, nobody's listening. No. Uh, and then Brainwave, he writes to Arthur Conan Doyle. <laughs> I mean, who has the, you know, this shy solicitor who had no friends, he's a loner, to think that he would pick up the pen and think of writing to the most famous writer of the day <laughs> and say, help me. And that famous writer would say, yes, I will. I mean, it's incredible. Uh, and then they become friends because he's, Arthur Conan Doyle really takes a liking to George, sees him for that he's, you know, he's, he's genuine, sees the plight mm. of the family. And so I think that story of their friendship is also really nice as well. Yes, it is. And, and George um, attended his second wedding. Exactly. Um, there's quite a lot of myth-making in Conan Doyle's life. And one of the things I found interesting in in your book was that uh Shapaji and in, uh, I think it maybe maybe George as well had uh made the point about George's eyesight which is probably mm-hmm. the if there's one thing the Conan Doyle <clears throat> aficionados will know about the case it's that when Conan Doyle first met George he said he couldn't do it because I can see you know he's got mm-hmm. poor eyesight but actually that was already in the public domain as it were wasn't it because Shapaji had already been campaigning on this point Mm-hmm. He had, and George had written to the uh, had written to the Home Office, and he'd requested his he'd written to his family that please get my eye test done. Mm. Uh, and Shapuji says that you know he wanted the results of the tests that were done, and they were not given to him. And he he makes a speech saying this, and you know there's lots of shame shames from the audience <laughs> that listen to him. So yes, it is, but it is you know. The thing is that it was also written about before. Mm. George himself wrote about it in the Umpire magazine. But, you know, you have George writing about it and you have Arthur Conan Doyle, (laughs) you know, really fleshing this out. It's a world of difference. So the Mm. minute Conan Doyle comes into the picture and he this is splashed across the Daily Telegraph, two days all eight columns and carried across the pond. It's carried in the Washington Times, New York Times. It's carried all over the UK. It is sensational. Mm. Um, in Conan Doyle's own words, he said, I think England was ringing with the uh, rights of George Adalji, you know, something to that effect. So um, it is absolutely sensational. George is suddenly famous. <laughs> you know, everybody knows him. Uh, and uh, he is and the media crucially changes its tune. You know, yes. you get a bit of celebrity stardust, and suddenly, you know, the very things that they had reported about his oriental appearance, mm. his debased jaw, his eyes, everything, suddenly it's you know these were the reasons. The the whole narrative changes. It's incredible. I read a lot of newspaper reports because I think they really give you the pulse of what is going on. Uh, and mm. I could just see, oh my goodness, you've changed your tune here oh. because, you know, ACD is coming to the picture. You are now saying, oh, this man was victimized because of his color. And, you know, your earlier reports were saying he's debased. It's very clear this Oriental did it because they sacrifice animals in the dark, etc. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it was it was good to see that how, you know, it was re- how the media changed its tune. And mm. so the effect that um, Conan Doyle has is immediate and it is it is huge. <laughs> it, it, it's interesting as well that, that sort of perspective is, is the, the, the way the media were writing all these these tropes that they're using uh, about uh, George, George Edelgy and the Orientalism and so on, that a lot of this is actually taken from or the, the, the sort of wording is taken from popular literature 
mm-hmm. um, and the sort of books that later you know, characters like Saxaroma and so on would be writing. And, mm-hmm. and Conan Doyle himself, exactly. in his earlier career, mm-hmm. writes a little bit along these sort of lines <laughs> with, with, with early stories uh, like Uncle Jeremy's Household, The Mystery of Clumber and The Sign of Four. Yep, where we absolutely. do have these 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 sort of racial tropes mm-hmm. and stereotypes, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. he was certainly not as strong on this as, as as an awful lot of the writers. I mean, if you compare him to somebody like Sapper, he's mm-hmm. he's not in their league at, at, at this at mm-hmm. all. But mm-hmm. nevertheless, he's written this kind of stuff, and it, it's it's very interesting and 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 rather nice to then have him step in mm-hmm. to this case yeah. and really mm-hmm. turn this on its head. Yep, and, and turn the attitudes of, of the newspapers and through then the public on their heads about this, mm-hmm. this whole issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's a very timely story as well, of course, for, for the world that we're living in now. It, it's, it's hugely relevant. Of course. And uh, I mean, I think the reason that, you know, you're so right that um, Arthur Conan Doyle himself uh, had these stereotypes. I mean, India to him was like either they're bandits or they're thuggies. Or it's a, it's like festering with, uh, you know, as British writers were obsessed with the mutiny. So it's like the the rebels and the bandits and the thuggies. And he, of course, he got everything all wrong. He got all his religions mixed up. There's Buddhists called, you know, with Muslim names. <laughs> and there's... Uh, there's uh, you know there's thuggies who are hindus with uh, muslim names so it's all it's all chaotic but they make a great story it's a cracking thriller and a mm. cracking read so you know hats off to him for doing these but it is true that these are the stereotypes that people think you know the orient is a dark place with all these people who are either bandits or thugs or uh, sacrificing animals in the dark as the villagers did think i mean mm. some of the reporters wrote that the, they, the reason they think that Edalji did these crimes is because his religion uh, worships animals, you know, they, they worship the sun and the moon and they, uh, they sacrifice uh, nocturnal sacrifices to animals was the exact quote. So nothing of the sort, the Parsis do nothing of the sort. Uh, <laughs> uh, and of course, you know, he wasn't even a Zoro- Parsis or Zoroastrians. He wasn't even a Zoroastrian anymore. He was, <laughs> he was Christian yeah. and he'd lived in this country all his life. He knew nothing about the Thuggy cult. Uh, but uh, there we are, you know, so these were the stereotypes. But um, I think the other reason is uh, that Arthur Conan Doyle rises to this is that because he is a man of empire, he mm. he firmly believes in empire. And, uh, you know, the thinking is that empire means justice. And, mm. you know, the, the good side of empire, you know, we, we, we give, uh, <laughs> we stand for these so, values and we give democracy and we believe in justice. And this is where the justice has fallen through. So he mm. feels as a strong, you know, representative of the British Empire, that justice, British justice has to be delivered. Mm-hmm. And I think that is why he um, he also really sort of jumps into this case. Uh, of course, the other side is that he was going through a dark patch in his life at this time. He was very depressed. You know, his wife had just died a few months back and he was in love with Jean Lecky. He was conflicted because he felt he felt the guilt that I am now free to marry Jean and uh, you know was I you know wishing for my wife to die etc so all these dark thoughts are coming into his mind very much like you know Sherlock Holmes going through his moods and Arthur Conan Doyle was going through these when this letter arrived and he just uh, he himself writes that it took him it was a welcome distraction it took him to another 
place, you know, and uh, mm. suddenly there was something to fight for, uh, you know, miscarriage of justice, uh, mm. champion the cause of somebody who is, uh, you know, out and sort of down, downtrodden. And mm. it all worked for him. So mm. it, it, it helped him as much as it helped uh, Adalji. So I think... Uh, this, this sort of, you know, this is the sort of feeling that happened, that uh, appealed to to uh, Arthur Conan Doyle. And he he jumped in. And once he jumped in, oh boy, did he really take it seriously. He did. I mean, these letters, these archives in Portsmouth, if, you know, researchers want to go there and see them, you'll see that he is writing on his honeymoon. It's incredible. <laughs> his poor wife, you know, she's there on this honeymoon after waiting to marry him for years and years. Poor Jean. All he's doing is this letterhead, you know, the hotel letterheads. He is writing to Anson day in and day out. There's letters from Venice, Dusseldorf. We know all the trail where he's gone on his honeymoon because we can see where, you know, all the hotel letterheads. And he is obsessed with the case. Mm. So I uh, think the the idea that he um, he comes in because of this innate sense of injustice and and um, desire to do something about it is really. It's really fascinating when you actually think back to some of those early works um, set in India or connected to India as well. I was just thinking about some of them earlier today in advance of the podcast, and um, I was struck by the fact that a lot of the time you have quite dodgy characters from England who have gone to India, who then get their just rewards as in the form of what are in you know uh, kill, <laughs> killer buddhists in the, case of, in the case of mystery of gloom but things like the brown hand where somebody mm-hmm. has actually you know stolen the the hand of uh, uh, a man through an amputation and he gets haunted by it until the hand is returned and um uh, and sign of four can be seen sign as that of kind four. of things mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. so yep. this this whole notion of the, the the revenge and i just thought it's an interesting point because of the the fact that there's the that even in the uh, most uh, absurdist uh, depictions of uh, Anglo-Indian Gothic in early Conan Doyle, Mm -hmm. you still Mm -hmm. have this sort of revenge um, Mm -hmm. element to it, which is, uh, you know, you, you, you reap what you sow, as it were. Right. And also, uh, I was reading uh, Klumba today, this this afternoon before. Thank you, Paul, for pointing that one out to me. And, uh, you know, th- there is the only mention, because I was always wondered how much he knew about Parsis. I knew he was mm. interested in Buddhism and all the other Indian religions. Uh, so he thinks one of these three men, the three Buddhists, <laughs> one of them is a Parsi. <laughs> so he's got it totally wrong. I mean, <laughs> uh, but they think he's, uh, he's from Hyderabad. He's a merchant. He's a Parsi merchant from... Uh, Hyderabad. So that was intriguing. But um, there's also this, which I found a parallel with Sign of Four, is that the Englishman has escaped back to England, has not escaped, but, you know, has come mm. back, returned mm. to England, and is guilty of something he's done there, and that's going to haunt him. <laughs> uh, this happens in both these stories. And, of course, revenge in a horrific way is uh, taken by the Indians. But mm. um, there we are. <laughs> you know, that, that's this gothic uh, mystery that uh, we get. Um mm. It's a great story, but uh, yeah, full of stereotypes. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he gets I mean, his backgrounds come from things that you know, the, the Moonstone by Wilkie Collins is a, a yes, huge influence true. on both those stories, and yeah. and yeah. Um, the Uncle Jeremy's household is this, this sprawling Gothic novel, Confessions of a Thug, written in 1839 by Philip Meadows Taylor, who'd actually mm-hmm. been an officer involved mm-hmm. in in hunting the thugs, but then he 
sort of fictionalized it all and this 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 becomes a hugely influential book i mean queen victoria herself is you know it's only two years into her reign and she's apparently asking for the 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 the, the run straight off the printing press as she's so desperate to finish this book oh. it's 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 this hugely influential sort of uh, the, the idea that it's then feeding the, the, the british public with of these kind of mysterious uh, oriental societies and so on which is is then being played upon in the literature and then is obviously being regurgitated uh, during the the Edelgy case of these course. stereotypes are fixed yep, uh, in, yep. in the public imagination absolutely i mean the two things that always run through these uh, these novels set at this time you know the british raj sort of novels is the mutiny of course mm -hmm. and uh, afghanistan mm -hmm. <laughs> and we know that arthur conan doyle is obsessed i mean watson has come from you know he's he's an afghan veteran mm. and he's been there second afghan war uh, so these two strains are always very strong and of course the the fascination is uh, the kohinoor is there so the fascination with the <laughs> with the bling and the diamonds <laughs> <laughs> so whether it's the Agra jewels or it's Moonstone, it's it's all influence of this this mm. glitter that lies in these Indian <laughs> palaces and treasures. So yeah, um, it it plays it it sort of you know it becomes the DNA of the of these plots. <laughs> An interesting with 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 Doyle, I find when he's talking about India as well, it's two of the great sort of Indian mutiny background stories he has is the Son of the Four and the the Crooked Man is the, the the mutiny is used as, as a kind of victorian british symbol of betrayal uh, mm -hmm. is is the way it was read but it's interesting that the characters who actually are the betrayers in both those stories are corrupt englishmen yeah so so conan Doyle's actually he's being rather more sophisticated in in his approach and again this this you can see it in informing perhaps his okay. his view on on george edelgy and, and and this this is the underdog and this this man is being picked on by this rather corrupt uh, uh -huh. as, as conan Doyle would see him police english chief. police officer with yeah. anson Absolutely. And he, he compares it to the Dreyfus affair in France, mm. which I found very interesting. Is uh, So it also strikes you that does he want to be like Emile Zola? You yes. know, this, is, <laughs> this is his Jacques moment. Mm. Uh, and he says that in, in France, it happened with a Jew, the Dreyfus affair, and here it's happened with a Parsi. So he's very clear. Mm. And he says England was quick to condemn uh, what happened in France. Uh, but you know, so but this is happening in our society right now. So he really makes a case, very very strong case, uh, and uh, you know forces the Home Office to act <laughs> very reluctantly, but you know, they do act. <laughs> and and while we're on the topic of what Conan Doyle does in campaigning for for George and for justice, he gets involved in this quite remarkable battle with with Anson, which. Um, which is really brought to the fore in the book. So tell us a bit about the background on, on Anson and, and this incredible dispute. Right. So Anson, uh, the great, uh, he's called Captain Anson, but uh, <laughs> that is from his military background. He's George Augustus Anson, and he's a total, he's an aristocrat. He's the son of the Earl of Lichfield. Uh, huge estates, the, uh, his ancestors have traveled the world, been part of the Admiralty, traveled to China. Uh, Victoria crosses in the mutiny. <laughs> we always <laughs> come back to the mutiny. <laughs> so there's a strong India link always uh, with, you know, most aristocratic uh, land, 
landowning families anyway in England have a strong India link. You know, everyone's linked with the East India Company. Uh, so Anson has that link. And of course, uh, you know, being what he is, he's an imperialist to the core. He cannot stand Shapurji Adalji. He takes an instant dislike to him. And he tells Arthur Conan Doyle that uh, he, you know, he doesn't know why a brown, a Hindu vicar, he calls him the Hindu vicar. <laughs> of course, he's not Hindu at all. You know, Hindu seem to be the generic name used just to describe all Indians. Um, so he says that he doesn't know why the Hindu vicar who's, who speaks faulty, you know, English faultily has been appointed as a vicar in an all-white parish. Uh, so he is has no sympathy for Shapurji. He's ready to believe every report that is sent by his uh, police sergeant on the spot, who is totally prejudiced. And, you know, later we know that he was he's discharged on drunkenness. So he, his reports are not, you know, absolutely not reliable. He never goes to the vicarage. You know, the least he could have done is called mm. on the vicarage. This is the vicar of Great Worley who is, uh, you know, in this picture being threatened with anonymous letters. He never calls it and he's invited to come to the vicarage, but he never goes. So that just stands out as, you know, his extreme prejudice and his, um, you know, he. He just, uh, George, when the reports come about George, he is so ready to believe that a 17-year-old would do this absurd thing uh, of stealing a key from a school that he doesn't go to and then planted it outside his house. Uh, it is, you know, it defies logic, but he's ready to believe the worst. And he says he's going to get penal, you know, make sure that he is uh, gets, you know, penal punishment for this. So, uh it's, uh, it's, you know, and the thing is, Arthur Conan Doyle sees through him straight away. Mm. He immediately knows that this is coming from deep prejudice. And um, he, he says it in his, as much in his papers. And then this then leads to a huge rivalry because once the Home Office says that, you know, gives George a free pardon, but denies him compensation, that's when the real battle begins. So it's almost like part three of the book because now Arthur Conan Doyle says this far he had only concentrated on um, saying that George was not guilty. Now he's going to prove who's the guilty party. And so he's going to investigate this further, take it a step up. And he's, uh, you know, he's obviously dismissing uh, the Staffordshire police as totally inefficient. So this really riles Anson, who says he's not going to be taught policing by a writer of crime fiction. Mm. And it becomes a huge ego clash. Mm. And by the end, you know, this is several months of correspondence, which is delightful to read because <laughs> they are just going at each other, hammer and tongs. Not so much ACD. Um, Arthur Conan Doyle is actually being very polite, but slowly losing his patience. You can see that he is almost writing through gritted teeth. Uh, but Hansen is just rude. He just dismisses every suggestion. He dismisses everything, throws every theory out. And then what's worse, I mean, I won't give away the whole plot, but <laughs> what I learned is that through these archives is that he actually lays false trails for Arthur Conan Doyle. Yes. This was amazing that this policeman has, instead of investigating the case, he is more concerned with discrediting Arthur Conan Doyle. So he lays this elaborate, he's wasting police money on laying an elaborate trap 
so he can just trip up Arthur Conan Doyle. And uh, so it goes on and on till Arthur Conan Doyle finally sends him a solicitor's letter and says, <laughs> you know, that's it. You will not write to me anymore. Talk to me through my solicitor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but Hans goes on. He goes on and on and on about it. Although we don't <laughs> want to give away the... Um... Yep. The, the 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 detail of it, but the mm -hmm. the the entrapment is mm -hmm. quite an amazing revelation in in this. It's, it's shocking, absolutely, absolutely shocking. shocking. And the detail, oh my god, <laughs> that was it took me by complete surprise. <laughs> so as I was reading this, I was going, you know, the um, the book is very much written on me on Conan Doyle's trail as he's going through this investigation, and I was discovering what he's discovering, and it was like up and down because there's just so many turns, twists and turns the whole way. Uh, and uh, also that uh, Anson himself writes anonymous letters. You know, he himself mm -hmm. has sent in a letter to uh, George Adalji. So it's a lot going on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, Anson is at the heart of it. And uh, of course, you know, this clash between these two Victorian figures is also very entertaining. <laughs> this caught my eye in, 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 in particular, um, where we, we find out that, again, without giving too much away, uh, is that the, one of the main suspects has relatives who are uh, Freemasons. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know, was, was Anson a Freemason? And it, it, it just feels like he's, he's covering up and protecting people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, Anson wasn't a Freemason. Right. Uh, mm. Arthur Conan Doyle was, actually. Yes. Mm. So mm. that is interesting. Uh, he wasn't, uh, no, it wasn't that that made him. It was just uh, the need to oppose uh, Arthur Conan Doyle. That is mm. it. So he comes to, uh, you know, Royden Sharp, this person in question. He just comes to the aid of this family in a way he had never bothered with the, you know, Adalji's. Mm and Shapurji, he's literally helping them along in every way, giving them advice, mm -hmm. writing to the family, visiting the family, which he had never bothered to do. You know, he never went to the vicarage, but he goes to this person's house. And um, so it is, uh, It is, I think, purely to prove Arthur Conan Doyle wrong, that mm -hmm. he, he goes into it in such depth and finally does a bit of policing. <laughs> but of course, laying long, you know, um, sort of i mean everybody trips up in this at various mm. stages we want to <laughs> give it away but uh yes uh but it is it is his need to you know show up arthur Conan doyle and prove him wrong that sort of drives him it, it's this this shocking idea of, of what was going on within the police that's always struck me with 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 this case is where it it is presented as as a, a straightforward miscarriage of justice and to me it's it, it's it's even more than that it is it is corruption going on here there's there's uh, the, you know the, the deliberate prejudice against the 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 elegies and, and the, the the twisting of ev it's just it's it's quite appalling it's, it's not just Conan Doyle playing the detective. It's Conan Doyle, as we've just been talking about, his sense of, of justice is absolutely at the heart of this. And that this must be uncovered and this, this, this mm -hmm. wrong must be righted. Yeah. And he exposes every bit. He is mm. relentless and he's forensic in, you mm. know, just pointing out everything that uh you know the the evidence that is brought to trial he said this would never have been admitted um mm. in any court it obviously went to the lowest court uh and um the police inefficiency the way they gathered evidence it was completely wrong mm. so it, at every stage from the police to the to the courts everything went against this family 
and uh, deliberately so because initially they were not bothered mm. they were just fixated in their head that this man this george adalji for no reason at all mm. has done this mm. you know why would a solicitor who is leads a really boring life he mm. does nothing he has no friends he's a loner he goes to office he meets his clients he takes the same train every day he goes to office he comes back by the same evening train he doesn't go to the pub he doesn't drink he's not like other people he goes and meets more clients in the vicarage in the evenings and he just goes for walks and spends time with his family he lives in the vicarage you know even when he's working he hasn't moved out he's born there he lives there so this he's rather dull as a person in in some ways you know as others might see him uh but of course the, you know what reason would he have to go in the middle of the night and slash horses mm-hmm. he was not crazy there was nothing in him uh that suggested this so uh but there they were they they believed that he had done it and they would not be budged mm-hmm. and right till the end answer you know he he keeps saying he's the one who's done it even after the pardon he stands his case <laughs> yeah. I, i i think what i've probably learned most from 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 your book on this as well is, is the, the the fact that this is almost the interconnection of a number of cases so you start with the, with the early letters uh, mm-hmm. from 1888 and then the dismissal of the maid and then letters start again 3 years later and then you've also got the the animal attacks it, it's mm-hmm. it's a number of cases interconnected and and as well as the 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 eagledry family there seems to be an awful lot of the village are connected into this case in one way or another which which hasn't really been highlighted before mm-hmm. in in uh, previous certainly from from uh students of Conan Doyle this has never really been gone into before it's absolutely fascinating to see how widespread mm-hmm. uh and mixed this this case is of course because it starts as i said in 1888 mm-hmm. and this goes on till in 1903 and then even after <laughs> it carries on so it's it's all linked and obviously the vicarage is targeted right from the right from the start mm-hmm. and then we don't know how what leads to what you know the killing might have been totally unconnected but the letters mm. start again immediately mm. so was it the same person doing both was it were the different people doing you know all jumping in and writing these letters so anson does admit that a lot of people wrote the letters he he does say that later uh but uh, you know how many villagers were writing these letters mm. because it is very local it you know it is definitely local and this is a village with a small population you can you know the police should have been able to nail this right from the start it's mm-hmm. just that they weren't interested mm-hmm. and that's the that's the one consistent fact i think across all of these related crimes is the is the reaction of the police mm-hmm. um and uh and the the main crime that comes out of of this is small town racism really mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. the that's the main abiding feature of the case mm-hmm. um at some points i was sort of racking my brains going okay well who actually was behind all of this what was actually going on why were they doing it but in a way it's it's a complete sideshow to what the story is really it's an incidental detail along the line mm, it is but one does wonder and you know everybody all of us have our theories and you know possibilities so um it's really interesting because in the archives there's a letter by uh, shapuji adalji or it's one of the police records that 
he goes to the police station and when they ask him you know do you have anybody you suspect and he actually makes a big long list of mm. people he thinks could have done it and the police do nothing about it <laughs> they just toss it away um so he did think of people you know whether they were you know involved in any way or not we don't know but at least they could have followed up some of the leads it's very clear that the police followed no leads they did absolutely nothing they just sat on their hands and then when they could they just arrested idalji that's it <laughs> mm. i mean i i i found I, i think you've mentioned this before in in talk to me the 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 timing of the first letters is 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 very interesting with it being at the time of the of the jack the ripper case in london Mm-hmm. where obviously that that a lot of fake letters and some were involved then you just wonder did the did the original letter writer get their idea were they inspired by this mm-hmm. uh, you know, whether it be the maid or whoever it it just seems a, a coincidence of timing and the press referred to uh, you know uh, the killer as the whirly ripper mm-hmm. because it, this happened shortly after um, you know a few years back uh, was the jack the ripper case an unsolved crime and there were letters there uh, but what the police files actually write, comment is that why were these written the jack the ripper uh, letters were different whereas mm. the the letters here were slightly different because they are written in the name of george adalji mm. and also in the name of some certain other villages so there's sort of pseudonymous and anonymous mm. uh, but uh, why would <laughs> you know why would george uh sort of you know blame himself say i i'm the killer and write it it mm-hmm. it made no sense um if it was somebody you know if he really was crazy they could be anonymous letters saying george did it and that's you know that was more likely mm-hmm. uh but why why have it written in the name of a school boy mm-hmm. and then say he did it so the it was all very complicated the nature of the letters uh and also they were probably you know i don't think there was just one letter writer i think there were a few Mm. and they all just got into it because you know this is one way of harassing this family and mm. uh, they just did it it's uh, the letters get they're quite hard to read because not mm. only are they racist they are some of them are bordering you know maniacal letters mm. and you just wonder you know it's constantly kill 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 it's like how you know how would you feel when you received letters like this mm. saying we're going to kill you you know your your son will be in his grave in a few you mm. know by the time this is over uh you know it's letters on those lines but um, anyway so i think there were a few people involved Yeah. writing these and I, i i did enjoy the moments of conan doyle doing his best sherlock holmes attempt at <laughs> interpreting the letters and saying well you know it doesn't quite go so far as to say you know it's a left-handed individual etc <laughs> etc et but but he does do quite a lot of psychological analysis on on people writing it and comes up yeah, with some quite yeah. shocking <laughs> some he shocking does. descriptions mm. he does and he also gets them uh, analyzed uh, by independent experts so he gets it analyzed by the person who did the letters in the dreyfus affair so he really takes it to the highest level uh, he gets george's eyesight tested by independent uh, opticians so that you know it's it's not like he's saying it it's it's all independent opticians independent um, f- it's like you know what you do now fact checking yes. it was what he was doing it it was equivalent of what he was doing he sent it off to uh, uh handwriting experts in france he got those letters back he sent them to the home office did they care no <laughs> so he was really doing so much groundwork it was amazing that you know one man he interviewed so many people 
it was a really thorough job that he was he did over months and months so mm. very impressive <laughs> so so it's interesting just to to uh, maybe reflect a bit on conan doyle himself and mm-hmm. what's what's your take on him having having you know lived in his letters and his exchanges with anson over the over the last few months writing the book um what what do you what's your takeaway how do you how do you see conan doyle well, you know, it was amazing the way he t- the fought it, the, the spirit with which he took up this campaign. To me, that was really, really interesting to to see, uh, you know, see unfolding before my eyes as I read all those letters, see the extent and the detail into which he went. And you could just see how his brain worked, how these, it gives you an insight into how he, he actually wrote his, you know, famous novels, because the thinking and the analysis that is going into this um, is something that he's doing there, very much there. Of course, you know, that's all fiction. This is the world of reality. So how much does he, you know, where it's where it's facts, how much is he going to, you know, f- sort of fall short? That was also interesting to watch. Uh, uh, so you know, he comes up with flying colors. Mm. And uh, it's really endearing the relationship that he has with George because when he invites him for his wedding and he writes in his memoirs that there was no other guest that I was the, he was the guest I was the most proud of. So that's, Mm. that's really nice. You can just, you know, visualize this awkward figure of George Adalji standing in a corner, not able to talk to, you know, all these writers there, Bram Stoker, you know, the Mm. who's who of the literary world all sort of in this little in this reception uh drinking <laughs> champagne and you know ca- eating caviar and there he is <laughs> probably in a corner <laughs> watching them all awkwardly gives a, pre- a present uh and um so you it's 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 really endearing to see that he you know he invited him he was proud of him uh and he remained his friend they they you know remained in touch and he was proud of him right through there's a, there's a lovely code to that. In, in 1951, when the as, as part of the Festival of Britain, there was the Sherlock Holmes exhibition at Baker Street, uh, and it was visited, I think, more than once by by George Adelgie and and his sister Maud were, were both both spotted there, and so he yeah he kept this interest and and you know was obviously proud of of his association with with Conan Doyle. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, one of the things that you know you were always looking for is that did this case finally then end up in one of Arthur Conan Doyle's books? But um, mm-hmm. I don't think it did. <laughs> we don't. I mean, I don't know if there was some form of it somewhere, but not really likely. I think mm-hmm. he kept it as the case that he investigated, uh, because there was another case that he does get into, and that's mm-hmm. the case of Oscar Slater. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't investigate that himself. He just looks at the evidence and he writes that this is. A miscarriage of justice. So it's very yeah. different. And then he didn't like Oscar Slater. He he you know he paid for his defense. And then when Oscar Slater when when he got compensation, he asked him to return the money to all those who had, no you know who had give, sort of contributed to it. Mm. And Oscar Slater says no. And then he just walks off and mm. he never talks to him again. Mm. And that's the difference with Adalji because when he raises funds for the Adalji campaign and he asks George if he'd, you know, if he'd like that, because George had no, had no work, he had no income. Uh, George says no. Mm. So again, that is noted by Arthur Conan Doyle and he says, mm. you know, see this boy, he's a respectable, you know, genuine boy. It's not, he didn't take the money that was raised. He said, give it to my aunt who's, who sort of gave the money, but mm. he himself didn't take any of it. So 
uh, that earned you know his respect for him that earned his respect in with jo uh, Arthur Conan Doyle so it was a good relationship which is very endearing um, <laughs> Well, it's, this has been absolutely fascinating. I think we're getting close to time. I was just going to ask you a final question, if I may, which is, um, what's what's next for you, Shrabani? Now that you've done the mystery of the Parsi lawyer, are you working on what can we expect coming from you soon? <laughs> well, you know, it's been a hard hard time writing this because of the lockdown and everything that all of us have been through, and so uh, I'm not going to rush into the next. But I've been sitting and actually reading a lot of Arthur Conan Doyle's that I haven't read so far, <laughs> and really enjoying them because he, you know he wrote so much. It's impossible to have read them all, but it's lovely. And thank you, Paul, for pointing out two more to me because uh, <laughs> it's it's such a it's such a treat to read these uh you know pull them out and just read them uh so i'm enjoying that a lot <laughs> and uh well something will turn up but i'm not rushing into anything well, right now <laughs> whatever it is i'm sure it will be as delightful as all your other books so um i we just want to thank you very much for joining us on the podcast yes, and uh and uh best of luck with uh, the book and the promotion and um we hope to speak to you again at a future date Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's been lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that was a great discussion, and uh, I'm sure we could have gone an awful lot longer with Shrabani. Um, what were your big takeaways from having read the book recently, Paul? My my take is really how much more complex a case uh, this is than, than than I'd actually realised or has been um, discussed in a lot of uh, certainly in a lot of Doyle's biographies. Uh, the, the the sheer level of, that it's a, a number of different cases with the, with the first run of of letters and then a second run. Uh, and then the letters combined with the the animal mutilations. All these cases are going on at the same time, and and also how much. How, how widespread it's amongst the local area this 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 seems to have been this letter writing and how many uh, of, of the villagers were involved in in one way or another um and and the other thing that comes out of it is is there's always been this this idea of of the miscarriage of justice and police incompetence um but you really get from this a, a level of, of of police intransigence and and, and almost corruption. Mm. Um, that comes from um, Shrabani having studied these these uh, letters from Anson. Yes, and for me, I think what Shrabani has really done with this book is to uh, reset the frame around the Edelgy case. And we now know it's uh, pronounced Edelgy uh, as a result of a letter that uh, that George wrote that, that that's included in, in Shrabani's book. Um, because I think the, the frame around this previously has been Conan Doyle's investigation and the defense of the Edelgy family uh, and of George specifically. But actually what really comes out of this is the deep-set racism and the persecution of the Edelgy family who come out of this with much more agency than I've seen in other accounts. And uh, it feels an incredibly topical and relevant book. Um, we live in a time where racism is never far from the headlines and is the reality for a great number of people. And uh, And the book has lessons in there that are, are just as relevant to us today as they were uh, for the poor Edelgy family, you know, over a hundred years ago. So next time we return to our regular programming and we touch on a story that we mentioned with Shrabani earlier today.
Yes, you'll have heard uh, Uncle Jeremy's household mentioned a few times, which is an 1887 uh, Indian Gothic story, uh, which Conan Doyle published in the Boys' Own Paper. So we will be discussing that in depth in the next episode. Excellent. So until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. <laughs>